As is our custom, this afternoon we'll be continuing through the Heidelberg Catechism, looking at the various doctrines which are a summary of the Word of God, so that we can preach through the whole counsel of God. And this afternoon we have reached Lord's Day 34. Lord's Day 34, dealing with the Ten Commandments, and more specifically we'll be dealing with the question of idolatry. And so in connection with that, we'll be reading from Exodus 32. Exodus 32, the verses 1 to 10. And she'll be able to find on page 98 of your pew Bible. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, come, Make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this man Moses, the man who brought us all up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it with an engraving tool, and made a molded calf. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink, and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go, get down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, Let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. So far the reading. Following this, we'll be reading from Lord's Day 34, which you'll be able to find on page 550 of your book of praise. The first question we have there is, what is the law of the Lord? And so follows the Ten Commandments as we read them this morning. Following that, we read, how are these commandments divided? Into two parts. The first teaches us how to live in relation to God. The second, what duties we owe our neighbor. What does the Lord require in the first commandment? That for, this very, for the sake of my very salvation, I avoid and flee all idolatry, witchcraft, superstition, and prayer to saints or to other creatures. Further, that I rightly come to know the only true God, trust in him alone, submit to him with all humility and patience, expect all good from him only, and love, fear, and honor him with all my heart." In short, that I forsake all creatures rather than do the least thing against his will. What is idolatry? Idolatry is having or inventing something in which to put our trust instead of or in addition to the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. 
beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. What springs to mind when you hear the word idolatry? Most people think back to the time of Israel. They'll think back to the time when the nations around Israel and all too often Israel themselves gathered in worship before figures of wood or stone, sometimes covered in gold. But these images are not just relegated to ancient days. We'll often find them here in the modern world. Indonesia, for example, is a place where this kind of idol worship is alive and well among some of the indigenous population. My parents, when they were speaking of their time on the mission field, often bring up a story that they remember well. There was one man who was extremely ill, and he was sitting on death's door. My mother didn't have a whole lot of medication on hand, and so she came to him and basically told him, I can give you this, but you need to prepare yourself because there's a very good chance that you could die during the night. And then she spoke some words with him and they uh, prayed. This man was not a believer. He was one of the pagans in the area and they prayed. And then uh, she told him he needed to put his trust in God because only a miracle would have him live through to the next day. She was quite familiar with these kinds of cases and the situation looked grim. Now, the next day she came to visit him, quite expecting him to be dead. Imagine her shock when she came and saw him sitting in the doorway to his house, looking alive and well. She told him, you need to give glory to God because this is a miracle. And he said, oh, no, 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 Ibu, Mrs. The problem wasn't that I needed to pray to God. I'd left my idol in the backyard, and he was angry with me, so I moved him to the front yard, and everything should be fine now. It's quite something, isn't it? That idolatry in that form can still be something that's very real in the world today. When we bring it into our Western culture, our perception of idols shift a little bit. People from reform circles will perhaps think of crucifixes, images that are meant by some as an aid to direct their eyes to the worship of God. Others might think of celebrities or sports stars. Still others will think of cars and money. But what all of these have in common is brought to our attention in a very clear way in the Heidelberg Catechism. In sum, says the Catechism, idolatry is having or inventing something in which to put our trust in, instead of or in addition to the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. And the Catechism lays out two things that we are called to do when it comes to idolatry. The first is to avoid and flee it. And the second, to fill that void by rightly coming to know the only true God, to trust in him alone, submit to him with all humility and patience, expect all good from him only. And love, fear, and honor him with all our hearts. So today, that is what we'll be examining. Avoiding idols in the pursuit of God. And we'll do this together through the lens of the catechism while looking at Exodus 32. And together we'll look at the fruit of idolatry. The outward expression of what idolatry eventually ends up with. Specifically with regards to Israel. 
and then the root of idolatry, and finally, we'll be looking at the cure for idolatry. Now, when we read the first six verses of Exodus 32, the first question that arises in our minds is, why? Why do it? Israel, why turn to idols? You've seen God lead you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You've seen the miracles that have happened. You've seen yourselves being led step by step across the Red Sea, through the desert. You've seen the judgments that fell on the Egyptian people and on the army. You've been led by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Why do this now? To understand their thinking, we need to take a moment to step into their shoes. The Israelites are at a foot of the mountain that they've reached after days uh, which, which, they've reached, which they've reached after seeing many miracles and signs and wonders. However, during these days, during this time, they have been led by the man Moses. Now, this one man, the leader of the people, he's disappeared. They came to the foot of Mount Sinai, he went up the mountain, and he disappeared. His protege Joshua went with him. He didn't go as far up the mountain, but he's also out of the picture. So there's no real hope for leadership or secondary leadership. And Moses has been gone for 40 days. 40 days. That's over a month. The Israelites have no idea what's been go- what is going on. They've been running, running, running. They had a quick battle with the Amalekites who had tried to raid them unprovoked not too long ago. And they were moving through dry and thirsty desert sands. And all this time, they've been given stories of a promised land that lies ahead of them, ripe for the taking, with the power of this amazing God that many of them have only recently become intimate with, although they would have known about him through their forefathers. Now, suddenly, after all of that movement, they are parked at the foot of a mountain for a long period of time. Their leader is gone, the one who's been the one encouraging them during all of this. And their situation seems to be stagnating. They have no reason to panic. They've got water. The manna keeps on coming day by day. They were just impatient. Nothing's happening. What about the promised land? We don't want to stay here forever. Let's keep moving. In order to keep moving, however, they needed a sign that they were going to be accompanied again. They wanted guidance. They wanted protection and divine power backing their conquest. They wanted it now, and they wanted to be in control. And the idols that they were asking for seemed like a good way to achieve these goals. On top of that, the Israelites have just come out of Egypt. Because of this, the idea of syncretism, mixing forms of worship as well as religions, has become very attractive to them. That's what everybody else does. The Egyptians do it. They worship their gods through idols. It seems like a perfectly good way to worship. But they were missing something. What the Israelites didn't see was that they were not the ones who were in control of the spiritual world. Think about that man at the beginning. 
He said his problems were all because he had his idols in the backyard. He moved them to the front yard. The God is happy. Life is good. We can carry on. They were thinking the physical could control the spiritual. Instead, the spiritual world is what controls the physical, more, is what controls the visible. More to the point, God himself, who is spirit, is the one who controls all. So it's not on a physical plane of existence where the real world stuff happens. It's on the spiritual. As we have read on a few occasions now in here in Owen Sound from Ephesians 6, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And they had lost sight of that. They were thinking it's all about the here and now. Let's keep moving and we can make God bend to our wishes. And so the people demand that Aaron make an image for them. They want to harness the spiritual forces that are going with them. So they want idols. They say, make us idols that can go before us. These idols will be leading them then. Aaron, who is, as is revealed later in the chapter, very uncomfortable with the whole situation, he tells them to take off their golden jewelry in order to make this golden calf. Now it's unclear whether he was hoping this would be too great a price to pay, but unfortunately for him, without hesitation, they pull off their jewelry and bring it forward. Aaron fashions a calf out of it. When he is finished, people promptly begin to spread the news, and the news is alarming. In our passage, we read, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. In other translations, you might find it saying, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. They are saying, These gods, there are more than one God, and these gods led the way. Now, some people struggle with the idea that these might be plural and, uh, compared to this, but there's a bit of a uh, translation issue there, potentially. The Hebrew word for God is Elohim, is plural. And so that's what they struggle with. But in all likelihood, these Israelites were focused on a world which was filled with myriads of gods, which they could control. These Israelites pointed to polytheism, worshipping multiple gods, and they saw that as something that was familiar for them. Sure, they had heard of the Lord from their forefathers, but that would not have been the only religion that they would have been exposed to. Monotheism, acknowledging that God was the only God in existence, this was extremely rare. Everyone else around them confessed multiple gods. And so the people who took up the shout, these are your gods, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt, would have genuinely been thinking that although everything they saw pointed to one God in control, there were more involved. Now we see Aaron intervening, trying quickly to salvage the situation. He knows who is God. 
He's been personally exposed to proper worship of this God through both his own intimate relationship with God and through his brother Moses. And so he quickly builds an altar in front of the calf. And he tells the people, tomorrow is a feast day to the Lord. You'll find where he says Lord, it's Lord in all caps. He's using Yahweh, the covenant name for God. Aaron is trying to salvage the worship by associating Yahweh with this bull and still keeping the people focused in a monotheistic direction. It's kind of the reverse of what King Jeroboam does centuries later when he sets up calves in Dan and Beersheba to keep the people from going to Jerusalem. Jeroboam, however, was trying to get people's focus away from proper worship of the Lord. Now, the fact that Aaron was under pressure from the people and the fact that he was afraid of the consequences of facing down the people doesn't exonerate him from his crime. What he did was a grievous sin, and he knew it. God did not want to be worshipped in this way. In fact, that was the whole reason that Moses was on the mountain in the first place. God was giving him directions for proper worship. In a twisted parody of God's intentions, Aaron tells the people to bring forward burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Burnt offerings being offerings that were supposed to set the people right with God. Offerings which sought atonement for worshippers' sins. Fellowship offerings were celebrating the ongoing covenant relationship that they had with the Lord, with Yahweh. And both of these offerings were put on the altar in front of the idol. The idea behind that, putting an altar in front of the idol and sacrificing on it, is that the God will then be forced to face the gift that's being offered. He can't get away from it. He can see it. It's right in front of him. And now he must respond in kind to the people. He's been given a gift, and now he must do what they desire. This is a pattern that you'll often find with an imitation of orthodoxy. People take what is laid out by God, interpret it in their own way, and use it to explain or encourage their current behavior. It's no longer about God, but it's about them. That's where the root of idolatry comes to the fore. Because there we can see it's no longer just the outward actions that are the driving force behind idolatry, but it's something that comes from the heart. We find this same pattern of a reference to the root of idolatry being found in 1 Corinthians 10. In this particular passage, Paul is speaking about meat being sacrificed to idols, and then he brings up this specific example of the golden calf and Israel. He writes in response, these things happen to them as examples and they are written for our admonition upon whom the end of the ages have come. Now it's interesting that he says these things happened to the Israelites. He spoke of this event and the consequences as happening. This very same word is found uh, elsewhere in Greek. In Mark 10, verse 32, where Jesus is speaking about what will happen to him. Or 1 Peter 4, verse 12, where Paul speaks about suffering happening to the believer. In all of these examples, there's a sense that there's an outside force acting on them, allowing things to happen. This isn't just chance. Is it? It's not random. 
Rather, God himself is involved. Now this isn't to say that God himself caused them to sin. Instead, it's a reference that you can find in Romans 1 as well. There, Paul is writing about those to whom God has shown himself through creation. How they've exchanged the glory of God for, incorrupt, for images made like corruptible men and birds and other animals. And he says, therefore, in response to these idols, God gave them up to uncleanness. And in verse 26, God gave them up to vile passions. What we see here is a consistent pattern of people refusing to say to God, your will be done. And so God turns them over to what they want to do and says, fine, your will be done. What follows their sin and the consequences of their sin is something that God allows to happen to them. It happens to them because of the rebellion that already dwells within their own hearts. And that's what we see with the people of Israel in our passage today. They didn't come before God, seeking him eagerly. At the foot of the mountain, they had every opportunity to do so, but they didn't. They didn't, as the catechism described, a desire to rightly come to know the only true God, trust in him alone, submit to him with all humility and patience, expect all good from him only, and love, fear, and honor him with all their hearts. God had saved them on more than one occasion, and now he submitted them to a period of testing as he gave his law to Moses on Mount Sinai. But their waiting on the Lord was not a waiting that was hopeful. Rather, it was irritated and restless. Their hearts were not God's. Their hearts belonged to themselves. They turned their thoughts back to Egypt. The worship there captured them. And so the Lord gave them over to their desires, and the consequences of that swiftly followed. Such impatience is not too far from our own hearts either, is it? When we're given to impatience, we stop waiting for the Lord. The Lord is no longer number one in our lives, and our hearts start leaning back towards slavery. Sometimes we'll find the Lord gives us over to the idols that arise in our hearts. Whether it be money, drugs, lust, power, independence, control, it takes over our lives. And he lets us feel the consequences. And we're led to a point where we're asked, how's that going for you? But this pattern of idolatry and consequence isn't the primary reason that this passage was placed in Scripture. It is there as an example, as Paul puts it. Certainly in 1 Corinthians, it is there as a warning. We find it again in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 14, with the call to flee idolatry, as well as in 1 John 5, verse 21, keep yourselves from idols. Never should this warning cease that the, world, that the church not fall into the same trap as Israel, that should be a warning that should always ring through our hearts. But that's not the primary reason that this passage was placed for us in Scripture. It's not the main reason because, that we find it there because then it would be impossible to hold to. As human beings, we are, as John Calvin put it, idol factories. 
daily our thoughts and our hearts are drawn away from God. Even with warnings, from moment to moment we can be drawn to priorities other than the glory of God. The moment that happens, another idol has sprung up in our hearts. We let temptations overwhelm our defenses and like Lot's wife who glanced back at Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed, we take our eyes off salvation and glance with longing to our former lives of sin and death, our old natures that are being daily destroyed. This is why this passage does not stop simply as a warning for us. It doesn't get us to simply look to ourselves for strength. Say, don't have idols and leave it at that. It causes us to direct our eyes to Christ because only in him can we find the strength that we need. He's been there. He knows the idols that temptations can bring into our lives because he too faced temptations. At the very beginning of his ministry on earth, he was led out into the desert for a period of testing and temptation. And we can read about that in Matthew 3. In each temptation he faced, he was given a chance to elevate the idol of self or to give honor elsewhere for personal gain. But in each of these cases, he stood perfectly strong. Israel's waiting was a chance for a proof of obedience. But their waiting ended in failure. Christ's period of testing ended with him overcoming temptation. Israel's waiting ended in horrific sin. Christ's ended in driving away the devil. Israel's waiting ended in hardening. Christ's waiting ended in perseverance. Israel was disobedient. Christ was obedient, saying, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Israel's ending waited, Israel's waiting ended in wrath. Christ's waiting ended in God's favor and the eventual opening of heaven. Israel did not have Christ, brothers and sisters. Yes, they had Moses as a mediator, who we can read if you follow the passage. He steps in. He speaks, the Lord has mercy because of Moses. And he allows the people to continue on, even though he does punish them partially down the road. But we have a more perfect mediator. We have Christ, and we have him in his fullness. Where our waiting, our impatience lands us in horrific sin, in idolatry, in hardening, in disobedience, and in wrath, we still have Christ. And where there is Christ, there is hope. We have someone who has fulfilled the requirements of God's law with perfection that we could never meet. And on him we rely. All that is required is turning to him in full repentance and faith. And so instead of clinging to our idolatry, let us, in the strength provided by Christ, seek the only true God. Let us trust in him alone. Submit to him with all humility and patience. Expect all good from him only. And love, fear, and honor him with all our hearts. In short, brothers and sisters, let us 
turn to him fully. Surrendering our bodies as living sacrifices, presenting them as living sacrifices to our God. And in thankfulness for what he has accomplished for us, let us forsake idolatry. Let us, in fact, forsake all creatures rather than do the least thing against his will. Let us do this in the power of Christ. Amen.